0: motherhood is very romanticized and very glamorized to an extent and when we hear the word motherhood many of us automatically go to that place of blissful amazing best thing that ever happened to me unconditional love and bond with my baby glowing happy all of these things that we associate to the perinatal period and what ends up happening in that kind of romanticized version of motherhood is all the other parts get left out, right? And so when we have this very specific definition of what it is to be a mother and what it is to feel like a mother, we we don't make any room for all of the other complicated, normal and very real aspects of the transition to motherhood.
1: You think back to the childhood books we read or to the you know stories that we've been told and the movies and in every possible area what we see is that it's just beautiful and easy and when it's not the moms or the women who don't want kids who don't like kids who don't feel bonded to their children who struggle you know are, are sometimes considered monsters yeah. And that's so unfair, it's so not right when there are so many different ways to feel. And that's normal,
2: that is typical. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. welcome to the podcast. I gave
0: birth to this this little tiny person who I loved instantly, but I did not fall in love with. There was this immense pressure of, what if something happens to her? What if something
1: goes wrong? I had a double whammy, I had a new baby, and then I had, oh, my baby's Down syndrome is gonna be a
2: special needs child. All of a sudden, I was alone with a baby,
1: and I lost it.
0: I was losing a lot of weight. I wasn't eating. I was hardly sleeping. I experienced pretty severe postpartum anxiety.
2: A wicked, wickedly bad case of postpartum insomnia.
0: I had a four-day-long panic attack. The worst time of my life. Inability to bond with my child, sadness, anger, suicidal tendencies. I hadn't left the apartment in probably eight or nine weeks. The last few nights were just panic attacks throughout the whole night. I didn't think it would happen to me.
2: I I just didn't think it was possible that that could happen to me. I don't think anyone thinks it's going to happen to them. These are the voices of mothers who have come through the motherhood center in new york in 2000 my book natural health after birth was still an early voice in the wilderness on the conversation on postpartum depression a topic which was then still only whispered about and was largely taboo why because what new mom isn't happy in reality many many Motherhood, even on the best of days, is an enormous job and requires incredible inner landscape and life shifts. For many new and pregnant mothers, there are deep valleys and steep mountains to climb. One in five pregnant and new mothers experiences a PMAD, perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. One in every 10 women or birthing people endures postpartum anxiety after giving birth, and 6% of women birthing people experience it while still pregnant more than 15% of women birthing people experience postpartum depression and the rates are likely even much higher as it goes undiagnosed and underreported 3 to 5% of mothers birthing people report feeling as though they can't escape intrusive irrational and upsetting thoughts about something happening to the baby unless they engage in repetitive acts OCD behaviors and while rare Postpartum psychosis is a dangerous and devastating condition that requires prompt medical care. PMADs are the number one complication associated with birth. PMADs are the number two cause of maternal mortality. My guests today, Katherine Berndorf, MD, and Paige Bellenbaum, LMSW, are dedicated to changing the perinatal mental health terrain, and they do it through the Motherhood Center, a place of radical acceptance, nurturance, individual and group support where pregnant and new mothers can receive understanding about the diverse needs of their pregnancy and new motherhood, skills for surviving and thriving, and access to the tools and interventions they need to ease the transition into motherhood and heal from devastating conditions like pre and postpartum anxiety, depression, and OCD. While I know that some of this stuff is really scary to hear about, especially if you're pregnant or plan to be down the road. My guest and I have a very important message. Every disorder I've mentioned is both temporary and treatable. Today, we're going to unpack why it's so important that we do talk about these conditions, how to recognize them, and what you can do. Catherine is a reproductive psychiatrist, the founder, CEO, and medical director of the Motherhood Center of New York, and the founding director of the Payne whitney Women's Program at Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian Hospital. In addition, she's a clinical associate professor of psychiatry and obstetrics and gynecology. A past postpartum support international board member, she now serves on the president's advisory council. For 10 years, Catherine was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. Her first book, The Nine Rims of Happiness, was a New York Times bestseller. And her most recent book published in 2019 is called What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions from Pregnancy to Motherhood. Paige is the founding director and chief external relations officer at the Motherhood Center of New York. She received her MSW from the Columbia School of Social Work. For the past 20 years, she's worked in public policy, advocacy, and clinical care with various populations, including homeless families and incarcerated young adults. After her first child was born, Paige suffered from severe postpartum depression and anxiety that nearly ended her life. However, once she began to heal, she became committed to fighting for education, screening, and treatment for postpartum depression so that no more women would ever have to suffer silently. As a result, she drafted legislation in New York State championed by Senator Liz Kruger, mandating hospitals to provide education on PMADs and strongly encouraging screening of all new and expectant mothers signed into law in 2014. Since then, Paige has been an outspoken advocate on the issue of postpartum depression and uses her story as a tool for change. She's appeared on The Today Show, Good Morning America, NPR, PBS NewsHour, Fortune, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. It's not just you. You're not crazy. You're not a bad mom. You're not alone. There's nothing to be ashamed of. These are words and deep beliefs that form the backbone of the work and the support given. At the Motherhood Center, and what mothers walk away knowing and feeling. Thank you for joining me today and welcoming my guests, ladies. It's so good to be with you again and to have time for a deeper dive. Thank you for joining me today on on health.
0: Thank you for having us. Such a
2: pleasure. I love being with you, and I'm just so inspired and moved by everything you do. So. Let's start by defining PMADS so that everyone knows what we're talking about. And I'll trust you to do this all the time. So tag team however you want to.
1: All right. So thank you
2: again, Aviva,
1: for having us. We are so privileged to be here and to be able to get this much time to talk about our favorite subject, PMADS perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And I say it slowly and deliberately because that is the acronym for a whole host of conditions and illnesses that we are trying to lump together so that if anybody should feel anything related to becoming a new mother, they will be able to find themselves in there. And the reason I say it that way is because we used to just say postpartum depression before we didn't say anything because we weren't talking about it. Once we started talking about it, we started to say, oh, postpartum or postpartum depression. But people would say things like, well, I'm pregnant and I'm anxious. Am I included in there? Or I'm postpartum, but I'm, you know, obsessional. Am I included in there? So really it became this big term, um, this big acronym that we don't totally love because it has the word MAD in it, Mm. but it's the best we can find at the moment to really hold everyone within it so that they can find themselves there if they should be struggling with the experience of any kind of mental health or mental illness uh, related to the perinatal period, so before, during and after pregnancy.
0: And I would just add to that, you know, there's a number of different diagnoses that fall under the PMAT umbrella, some that your listeners might be familiar with and some they might not. But to Dr. Berndorf's point, we think of depression, but it also includes anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and in rare but very, very serious instances, postpartum psychosis.
2: Thank you. That does help to have that clarified because I do think that many people think, oh, well, it's not postpartum depression, so this must just be something normal or just ignore it. A major commitment that I have with this podcast is breaking down taboos and shining a light on what's hidden. And you all know I've been in maternal health for a really long time now, so I started my midwifery journey in 1981. And it wasn't until, I guess it was the late 90s, maybe even around 2000, that Marie Osmond came forward about her PPD. And it was almost like tabloid fodder at the time. I think that she was sort of treated initially is a joke in some ways. But I think for so many women, it was like the revelation of a dirty little secret that opened this lid on this hermetically sealed jar of postpartum realities. So why was PPD originally postpartum depression and now PMADS taboo? What taboos persist now? And and why does this need to change? You know,
0: I I think that It remains taboo today for the same reasons that it was taboo 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 150 years ago. There is a very specific interpretation of what it is to be a mother. Two words that I reference a lot now when I speak to moms and providers. Motherhood is very romanticized and very glamorized to an extent. And when we hear the word motherhood, many of us automatically go to that place of, blissful, amazing, best thing that ever happened to me, unconditional love and bond with my baby, glowing, happy, all of these things that we associate to the perinatal period. And what ends up happening in that kind of romanticized version of motherhood is all the other parts get left out, right? And so when we have this very specific definition of what it is to be a mother and what it is to feel like a mother, and we we don't make any room for all of the other complicated, normal, and very real aspects of the transition to motherhood. And so what we are left with is, if I don't feel that way, then there's something wrong with me. I'm failing at this. I'm doing it wrong. Everybody else has this figured out. I'm the only one who feels like I made a mistake, who wishes I never had this baby who is so anxious that I can't even be in the same room with the baby, right? And the list of symptoms goes on and on. It is a deep, dark secret. It always was. To your point, there are more and more people that are coming forward and sharing their stories. You know, we can throw out a couple of names. One is Paltrow.
1: Brooke Shields.
0: All of these people coming forward helps to destigmatize, And yet, Unfortunately, that stigma still so very much exists. The fans are flamed in this new Instagram social media world we live in because that's all we see is the blissful part.
2: It's so curated, so dangerous, and so misleading. It's not that motherhood can't be all those things. I mean, I did not experience postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety diagnostically. I had a relatively easy transition compared to what all three of us know, women go through, people go through. But even within that sort of normal, if you will, it it was really hard so often. And it it was helpful for me to be already studying midwifery and around other mothers that I could be more honest with my experience about. But sometimes I think just vocalizing, it, even when it's the normal stuff, we have to be able to vocalize the truth of it because it's so overwhelming. Very, very true, and I think,
1: and I hate to bring this up so early on, but you know, in the post row era now, I think this idea of forcing motherhood, right, as is, as if it's you know a, a something that everybody wants and should have, only proves to, I think it's going to take taboo backward. It, it's going to keep it entrenched. It's going to make it worse. I think we, we have a, a bigger problem ahead of us, not just in terms of reproductive rights and women's health care at large, but in terms of what motherhood is, because now it's we're being told what it is by the legal system, by the, you know, by the legislature. And so we're being pigeonholed more than ever. So I think this idea that mental health is challenged by all, to your point of view, but you don't have to have a diagnosis to feel ambivalent or struggle or be challenged as you
2: become a new mother. That is the norm, right? That's the norm. And to your point, we do know from pretty well-conducted studies now that I'm gonna call it compulsory motherhood, the inability to have an abortion, if that is what you need or want to do, does statistically increase the rates of perinatal anxiety and depression and poor outcomes for mother across the board. So our work collectively and individually, I feel as human beings is so often a reflection of our own journey, things that shape us along our educational path or happen in our lives that put us in a direction. And I would love to hear both of your stories of what each brought you to the point of specializing in PMADS and opening the Motherhood Center. I know that you're both deeply invested in this work and Paige, you very specifically had a very trying experience with perinatal mood disorder.
0: Yeah, I did. Um, and despite the fact it was 16 years ago, it it I still can touch it and feel it like it was yesterday. As a Trained clinical social worker. Uh, During the pregnancy of my first child, uh, I started to experience symptoms of anxiety and depression. But I always highlight this, even as a clinician, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was normal or if it wasn't. I didn't really talk to anyone about it. And then when my son was born, uh, rather quickly started to experience very acute symptoms, uh, primarily of depression and anxiety didn't tell anyone um, kept it my secret for about six months. It was very difficult for me to get out of the house uh, to care for myself, to care for the baby felt like I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. Uh, didn't wish I'd never had my son, uh, wanted to buy a one-way ticket to another country and never come back, didn't want to be alive and felt like the biggest failure. Of as a mother of anyone on the entire planet and was petrified to tell anybody that I was feeling that way because what kind of a mother would feel that way about her own child? Uh, and it wasn't until one day uh, when I was taking my son for a walk uh, on the sidewalk and everything felt gray and dark and it was the first time I'd been outside in a really long time with him. Uh, and I started to approach a corner And out of the corner of my right eye, there was a bus coming. Um, And in that moment, all I could think about and all I wanted to do was to throw both of us in front of that bus because we'd be better off. We'd just be better off. He without me as this terrible mother and I without having to live with this biggest mistake. And I don't know what held me back in that moment, but I did not do that. And I remember the, the. The bus passing by and catching a reflection of my face in the mirror or the window and thinking, who is that person? I don't recognize her. And I knew undeniably in that moment, I needed help. And, you know, as, as fate and luck would have it, uh, I found myself actually being treated at the Payne Whitney Women's Clinic, which is the very clinic that Dr. Berndorf started. And that's when I started to heal and get better. Uh, and I started therapy and I went on medication and I started to feel more connected to my son and I started to enjoy motherhood as I was meant to. Uh, And when I got better and when so many women who come through treatment at the day program get better and it's when I can tell they're on the road to recovery, I got pissed that nobody told me how common this was and how many women I spoke to about how I was feeling and what I was thinking. And they said, me too, me too. And that's when I took it to the legislative streets. Um, It was my background. uh, And I started drafting legislation. And fast forward, we got our our bill signed into law, as you mentioned, in 2014. And I was hooked. Uh, And a few years later, joined forces with Dr. Berndorf and and the original co-founder. And seven years ago, we came together to create this amazing space that's been open for five years now. and it's. The best thing we ever did. It's the hardest thing we ever
2: did. Yeah, <laughs> Kind of like motherhood. Paige, during that time, that six months, what kind of physical and psychological feelings and symptoms were you having and, and tacked on to Did anybody around you notice or say anything?
0: I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I felt anxious all the time always had cortisol racing through my body. Um, I didn't feel connected or attached to my baby at all. I was going through the motions of caring for him, but I didn't feel anything towards him or for him. Uh, I had really dark thoughts of not wanting to be here anymore, not wanting to be alive. Uh, I had a hard time caring for myself, bathing, brushing my teeth, going outside And I wasn't finding any joy in anything that I used to enjoy. I felt helpless, hopeless. I couldn't make decisions. And I know my husband knew that something was wrong, but as he tells the story, and we actually did a really beautiful story together for NPR a couple of years ago, and it was really amazing to hear him share his side of it in that moment, but he didn't know either. He didn't know what was normal and what wasn't. He had a brother and sister-in-law in in Germany who bought a weight scale for the baby that were weighing the baby like 10 times a day and like thought that was okay. You know, like, so he was like, I don't know what it's supposed to look like and feel like. It's so interesting. There's one woman, a friend of ours um, named Sack, and I'm going to have her listen to this because she was just over. I haven't seen her in years. She just came over a few weekends ago for brunch. And one day she came to visit, and she pulled Bjorn aside. She said, "She's not okay. There's something really wrong here." Uh, and that was right around the time that I decided I really needed to get care to to stay alive. But other than that, nobody else, nobody said anything. Not my providers, not friends and family. And I don't blame anybody, right? Because this was 16 years ago. No. Well. I do blame providers a little bit but you know we don't talk enough about it and and I think it's so uncomfortable to talk about that this is where we see women fall through the cracks.
2: Even as I was putting the episode notes together and I struggle with this a lot when I'm teaching pregnant people or even preconception people about what to know about that balance between not wanting to scare somebody in an anticipatory way and then at the same time, knowing that when we have the information, if we are someone who is experiencing even the earliest whiff of symptoms, we have the knowledge and permission to get help. We know that if we have symptoms of preeclampsia during pregnancy, somebody's looking for that during pregnancy because we know it can be life-threatening, although not enough people are looking for it postpartum and that is when it's also life-threatening. but. These are also life potentially life-threatening conditions. And even when they're not life-threatening, they're life disabling. And they can really be joy robbers of new motherhood. And with all the information we have around bonding, there's like the double whammy, right? Like you're, you're experiencing all this horror. And then also you're worried that you're not bonding and you're harming your baby that way. So when it comes to, and this is for, you know, for both of you, and, and Catherine, I want to swing back and hear your story too. But when it comes to prenatal. Education or early mom education, early parent education. How much do you feel like we should be weaving this into the conversation of anticipatory care along with nutrition and other things?
1: Can we start in grade
2: school? I, I'm like not even
1: joking because like we need to be talking about this as typical, right? We need to be talking about the idea that 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 motherhood, um, you know, there's a word called matrescence, which yes. is um, right be, uh, becoming a mother, and it's not a developmental stage per se because it doesn't apply to everybody. Not everybody goes through it. Not all women, not all men, but but many uh, women and other birthing people do. And and I think in the in that journey, it is typical. Again, I hesitate to use the word normal, but to feel ambivalent, to be challenged, to find out that it's hard and um confusing and, you know, all the emotions, a full spectrum of emotions. And you know what, you think back to the childhood books we read or to the, you know, stories that we've been told and the movies and in every possible area, what we see is that it's just beautiful and easy. And when it's not the moms or the women who don't want kids who don't like kids, who don't feel bonded to their children, who struggle, you know are are sometimes considered monsters yeah. and that's so unfair. it's so not right when there are so many different ways to feel and though that's normal. that is typical. And because we only allow a certain way, we don't have that opportunity. So we could be teaching that at an incredibly young age if we could just open that door. But to your point, you know, you said you asked the question, how much do you say in a prenatal visit, per se? You know, I, I've been up against this since I started my training in the in the early 90s. They they didn't want us to go into the hospital. I would say, can I come talk to your moms about Postpartum issues, and they'd say, "What do you mean? What do you mean? What are you going to say? You're going to scare them?" I was like, "I'm really not. I'm going to just speak about kind of the spectrum of things and feelings that 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 women can have or families can have." And and, and they really made it hard. They right the establishment, the even the the nurses who ran this program, they were nervous to have me come in and speak about postpartum illness because of what it was going to do to the patients. Or to the prospective parents, which is so not helpful for anybody to not know the truth. And then, can you even hold on to it anyhow if you hear it, or do you, you know, want to deny it the way the rest of the world seems to
2: want to do? I mean, early on in um, you know, if my book came out in two thousand, I was writing it in ninety eight, uh-huh. and you know, now thinking back, it was ahead of its time. But what happened for me was I had had a midwifery client who came in with her uh, second pregnancy and it had been six years of just, just deep postpartum depression. Uh, It was a PTSD situation from a birth trauma. And interestingly, she had had a home birth, had to transfer to the hospital because of a hemorrhage and given the state that she was living in, where midwives were illegal, the midwives put her in the car, sent her to the hospital with her husband, and she felt just desperately abandoned. And then on top of it, she had um, a postpartum thyroid problem. So she had had heavy bleeding, felt abandoned, had a postpartum thyroid problem. She had just so many reasons to be at risk for postpartum depression. So when she came to me, it was just clear that This had been missed in her for two years. She lived with two years of hell. And that was when I started to dig into, you know, I had to actually print out articles at that time still from the medical library, and there wasn't that much. But there was some work. There was Dana Raphael's work on matrescence, um, some work on doulas and the importance of, of female care and birth, and some work on postpartum depression. And what's crazy to me is that, I mean, I've been through seven years of medical education, three years of that focused. With obstetrics and family medicine, many years of midwifery, and there was no training in any of that on postpartum issues. And certainly, the prenatal anxiety and postpartum anxiety are newer. So, so Catherine, you were ahead of your time as well with setting up this clinic and getting into this work around postpartum depression and PMADS. What inspired you? Your story is so resonant. Yeah, I, it's mine
1: is not. It is so different. My story begins probably in well, probably long ago, but I was at a I I was at an all women's college, Smith, and I I really um, loved always having the woman's perspective incorporated into all classes, which is what I thought they did so brilliantly. Um, that was just part of the culture, and I got uh, very interested in reproductive rights and work related to uh, you know I thought I was going to go that route working for NARAIL or Planned Parenthood. Um, and when I found that I wasn't qualified to get a job at any of those places after college, working in policy, I ended up working in a women's health center, essentially an abortion clinic, and also in a halfway house. And I lived in two nights a week and helped to provide sort of mental health care. You know, just I passed out medications and sort of lived in this really progressive place in Washington, D.C. that was amazing. Anyhow, all of that really informed where I was heading and didn't know I was going to end up in med school, but found myself there in large part. And I, I know I say this and actually I, I i was feeling like the women that I saw around me who were doing the coolest things were not getting the respect because they didn't have the MDs. I don't know if you have that
2: experience, Aviva, but. Well, it's why I went to medical school. I mean, I was happily practicing as a home birth midwife, but I was in an illegal state, which also happened to have, wow. then still has the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the country oh. and felt really powerless to do anything. And my voice, as a home birth midwife, was just entirely invisible. I even uh, joined together to involve the Atlanta University Black Family Health Project, got a board together to try to create a mom mobile to go into high-risk communities. This was in 1986 and was told, you can't do it. You know, you're, you're an illegal midwife. You guys don't count here. So for me, it was really about having the credential and the credibility to make a change. So yes, exactly the same thing that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. I would have come work for
1: you if I oh, knew I if that was happening. You, you know, I, I mean, that's incredible. I, I, it, it's sort of the same feeling. I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to go this route, I might as well just go, go big. I had to go back and do my post back, my pre-med, I had to do all that stuff, right? Um, and then when I ended up in med school, I I really thought I was gonna be an OBGYN and I worked with midwives. I was at Brown. There were I my baby, all the babies I delivered in uh, med school were with the midwives, which was so cool. Anyhow, I guess when I, you know, got to psychiatry and I figured out I wanted to do it blew my mind. I thought, you know, I can get to women's mental health. A variety of ways. And this is a better, this seems to be a better fit for me. Um, But I was always committed to that intersection of, of OBGYN and psychiatry. And that's sort of how I got to it. And, and I got into the field. And what's interesting was when I was in my residency, I had my first kid, got pregnant in my third year, delivered in my fourth year. And I'll I'll never forget uh, how incompetent I felt. I mean, what really brings me my personal story, which I guess you know, it's somewhat different, but similar to pages is really, I, I left maternity leave early to go back to work. I got eight weeks because I had a C-section, um, six weeks for a vaginal delivery, but eight weeks if you had a C-section. And I remember at week seven thinking I'm losing my mind. I don't know what to do with this kid. I'm totally incompetent. I think I'm making things worse and I better get back to work where I know how to be successful because it wasn't going that well at home. And my husband, who's also a physician, was on his research years, and he was like, uh, you know, with the two of us looking at each other like like ding-dongs, and didn't know where to get help, what to do, and yet, you know, this was my area of interest. So I think that my personal story, I didn't really put my personal story together with it, but I, I started sort
2: of there, which is like, it was really hard to become a new mom. It just brings you to your knees. It doesn't matter what competencies you have in your life. And sometimes I think the women I work with who have a significant amount of external competencies really are cognitively challenged by the transition to, I don't even know how to change a diaper or make this baby stop crying. And are they starving or what's happening here? What is going on? Did you have to craft your training program? I mean, there really wasn't, a robust, yeah. What did you do to do that?
1: You know, I I was always pushing, always asking for more, hey, can I go over to OBGYN and figure out, you know, will they take me and let me, you know, observe with them and talk to the patients and nobody was doing it. I also ended up in Chicago during my second year of residency, because again, the, my boyfriend at the time is now my husband was at university of Chicago doing surgery. And, and so I, I went there for my second year so I could, um, we could be in the same place. And I ended up getting myself a position in a residency program for that year. And I worked with Laura Miller, who's one of the, you know, foremost experts in the field, a little bit older than I am, who um, had a unit that I wanted to work on. That was the first psychotic, pregnant, addicted women, and I was like, "How fast can I get there?" They didn't have it in New York, mm-hmm. so it turned out that the year I went to Chicago, I actually got probably my most robust training during residency. And when I came back, I was on fire. I was just like, "How do I get this? How do I find this? How do we create this? Why isn't this happening?" At you know, my institution and around New York City, there were a few people doing it, but but kind of in their own silos and there was nothing organized. And I always say, when I started the women's program, I went back to Chicago with my husband to finish and sort of apprentice there with a colleague at Northwestern. then I came back to yeah, too long of a story. But when I came back to New York, there were like six seminal articles on the topic of meds and pregnancy, right? Like, I remember when I started the program, I was like, here's your little packet." of what we know, here's the definitive work in the field. And it's not particularly definitive. So let's go. But we're going to help these women. anyhow, we're going to figure it out. And we're going to sit with them. And we're going to try to understand their individual positions and why they're struggling. And let's just make it up if we have to. But I did tap everyone I ever knew in the field and ask them for their um, help. Like, what did they do? How did they push forward. And I really, I I stand on the shoulders of many, um, not so many, but those before me who yeah. really created, helped to create this, this field of reproductive psychiatry or, or perinatal psychiatry, because it didn't even have a name back then.
2: So now though most women go to their obigyne some women go to their midwives or birthing pregnant and birthing people and we don't in conventional medicine start postpartum care really until 8 weeks postpartum and most people don't get sent to a perinatal psychiatrist or psychologist And most OBs, pediatricians, family doctors, midwives, postpartum doulas, all the people involved in the care either don't know what to look for, don't know the questions to ask, or even if they do see something, they don't know what to do. So part of it, it becomes on the, unfortunately, the onus of the pregnant or birthing person themselves. Paige, you talk about a number of the feelings that you had, but can we just repeat For listeners who either are going to become pregnant, are pregnant, are new moms, or are healthcare providers, what to look out for? Because there's the sort of quote unquote normal pregnancy and new mom stuff. We do experience some sleeplessness. We do experience a lot of things that we chalk these other conditions up to normal because it is normal to have some anxiety. It is normal to have some overwhelm, all the things. What do you want? Pregnant and birthing people to know to look for. But what are some specifics?
0: So I'm going to not do what you just asked us to do. I'm going to put a pin in that.
2: Go for it. Because there's
0: a couple of things that I want to say first. And then I want to come back to that because you've made some really important points here. And the truth is, and this is coming off of the coattails of a three day conference I was at with a whole bunch of perinatal mental health specialists in New Orleans that you're right, OBGYNs, pediatricians, other providers that come in contact with new and expecting mothers are not talking about PMADS. They're not screening for PMADS. And so where does that leave us? That leaves the onus on a newer expecting mother who's struggling, who's drowning in a sea, who's paddling as fast and as hard as she can to keep her head above water. And the last thing, and I speak from experience, that she is able to do is pick up the phone and start trying to find help for herself, right? We need to move in the direction of making it mandatory and required for OBGYNs, midwives, pediatricians, all of these providers who come in contact with a newer expecting mother, get this, 25 times over the course of pregnancy and postpartum to start talking about PMADs providing education because education is prevention. Education is an olive branch to recovery for somebody who is experiencing a PMAD. We need to be screening, not just once, according to the recommendations of ACOG in the perinatal period, but I would go so far as to say every three months, right? PMADs needs to be a part of every visit, every conversation. Because that's where we start to break down the stigma and the barriers and we give women permission to feel this way and ask for help. That is one of the only ways we're going to be able to fight the statistic of 80% of all new and expecting mothers falling through the cracks of women experiencing PMAS not getting the treatment they need and deserve to get better. Um and so I just had to put a pin in that and I'm gonna pass it over to Dr. Berndorf to talk to you a little bit more about the actual signs and symptoms.
2: Amen, sister. And that is totally something that I could um totally get behind working with you on in terms of making that requirement a reality.
1: Very fired up here.
2: Yep. Okay. <laughs>
1: Back to the basics. Yes. Back to basics. So I, I I just want to make the point that depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, psychosis, all of these things that are happening in the perinatal period are the same things that are happening not in the perinatal period. I just want to be super clear that it's not like super special sauce, right? It's just the time frame. We don't know these illnesses these to be again, so different. Yes, they're happening in the context of the hormonal storm, but we don't know that to be causal. That is a stressor. That is part of it, but it is not the whole story. So, you know, again, people see pregnant or postpartum, they're like, ah, I don't know what to do. I can't touch that patient. We can't do research on these people because they're so fragile and different. So that's a problem.
2: Well, and to your point about this also, we're living in a sea of uh, mental health epidemic where one in four women is on an antidepressant or on an anti-anxiety medication anyway. So as you say, this may just be something that exacerbates something underlying or is is part of a bigger cultural milieu of something happening, which I want to circle back and talk about, but share your back to basics first. So back to basics. Yes, I want well, there's lots to say about what you just yes. said. <laughs> but
1: you know, I, I go back to I go back to med school. Like, what is depression? You know, SIG, I don't know if you remember SIGI caps, right? Yeah. Sleep, right? It's the acronym for all of us medical students who had to memorize everything. We have right? so many acronyms. It's so many acronyms, but it's sleep, interest. G is guilt. E is energy. C is concentration. A is, you know, appetite. P is psychomotor uh, retardation or agitation. Well, slow right, movement is, for people who don't slow know. Slow
2: movement. Means, or irritable
1: right. uh, movement. Yeah. Thank you for the translation. I, I got, you know, it's like, and suicidality. Yeah. So, so really, but what I want to point out, other than really low mood and um, not enjoying things, which are. Re- one of those is required for depression. What I want to point out is that people go to the, to the doctor or the midwife or their provider afterwards and they say, or, or during pregnancy, and they say, I don't feel great. Right. I'm not sleeping well, eating well. I can't concentrate. I'm not, I'm not up to my usual energy. And, and those are the first four symptoms of depression. And so it gets confusing because people will write you off and say, oh, you're fine. Everybody feels that way. But what is never normal is what Paige was describing before. Hopelessness, helplessness, guilt, feeling like you don't want to be there anymore, you know, not enjoying things. Those things are never normal. Okay? Hopeless, helpless guilt around what's happening and suicidality, never normal. So you don't always know to ask those things or to tell those things, but that takes you know, your postpartum visit or your prenatal visit that that you could easily be, you know, overlooked to have those symptoms that takes it to a different place. So I I just want to make that point.
2: And what about the, the anxiety symptoms?
1: So the anxiety symptoms, again, mm-hmm. they come in the form of of apprehension and dread and fear and avoidance, you know, for there's panic disorder where you have elevated, you know, heart rate and sweating and sympathetic responses and and feeling like you're going to go crazy or die they happen you know uh, they crescendo and decrescendo quickly you can have ocd type symptoms which now have been kicked out of the anxiety disorders and there it's their own categories but we still kind of think of them that way you have thoughts that go round and round in your head that you can't get out of your head or compulsive actions like washing checking counting cleaning evening things up touching specific things, the sort of magical thinking around ways to neutralize anxiety that you feel. And that can take up lots of time in the day and get in the way of, and to some extent, can also lead towards a loss of touch with reality sometimes. We also have PTSD, which is a re-experiencing of trauma, which can be from birth or from other trauma in the past, where you avoid things, you experience them again and again, or you have this hyper arousal. And I can go on and on, but those are the basics. I've just given you six lectures in three minutes. I'm sorry, but those are the back to basics. And, And there's more, but
0: I just wanted to throw in two more, one of which I feel like is so important because it happens to so many women. And every time I say this to a crowd, people are like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said that. That happens to me. And I didn't know that that was a thing. Eighty percent of all women experience scary, intrusive thoughts. Right. And and Dr. Berndorf was kind of hinting to this. Right. Now, these are very, very distressing and disturbing, sometimes graphic thoughts, images that will pop into predominantly a new mother's head that she cannot get rid of.
2: And sometimes they're really scary. Like they can Very be oh. scary. like hurting a your horrific. baby. Yes.
1: Stabbing
2: the baby. The baby, the baby over. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Terrifying stuff.
0: And, and new mom cannot get rid of these thoughts. They keep happening. There's putting baby in the microwave, throwing baby down the stairs, throwing baby out the window, you name it, you know, pushing a stroller into traffic. These thoughts just pop into her head and she is petrified by these thoughts. And oftentimes they get in the way of her actually going into the kitchen or leaving the house or getting close to windows or walking down the stairs, right? Which has that OCD flavor to it. But 80% of all new mothers have these. Um, and and we don't talk about them because they're so disturbing that we keep them inside and we feel terrible, right? Again, what kind of mother would think this way about her baby? Well, 80% of all new mothers would have those thoughts. And the other thing I want to say that falls into the category of PTSD is birth trauma, yes. right? it, ha- it happens so frequently. And because birth is, for all intents and purposes, can be such a beautiful experience. Oftentimes that's the only way we're conditioned to speak of it, right? But so many women experience a traumatic birth. And as Dr. Burniff always says, trauma is in the eye of the beholder, right? It doesn't matter if as a listener, you think it's traumatic or not. It's how that, that person experienced it, which can lead to all of those PTSD symptoms. And, and so many women experience some level of birth trauma that can really be activated in the postpartum period, and can also oftentimes be seen in concert with some of these other symptoms.
2: And it can be triggered by breastfeeding or the baby crying, just the relationship with the baby. The data I read most recently is 7 to 14% of women are experiencing birth trauma, and up to several percent are actually could be diagnosed technically with PTSD based on their birth experience. It's really high. I thought the number was actually a little bit higher but but it yeah may yeah maybe since the pandemic especially which oh. I want to ask you about so a couple of things one of the profound things for me when I was writing my book many many years ago and again there was much more anthropological data than there was actual data and anthropological data can be romanticized and we know that there's dramatic underreporting of at that time the conversation was really around postpartum depression But it does seem that in many cultures, especially when people live in community or more traditional forager cultures, postpartum, more perinatal anxiety and depression, and especially postpartum depression, are not so much of a thing. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. What are some of the potential cultural contributors? Why are these conditions happening? It seems like there's an escalation in the past couple of decades, much more than just the fact that we're talking about it and admitting it. It seems like the pandemic has made things worse. So, what are some of the things that can put someone at risk that they might be able to transform or do something about? What are some of the underpinnings, either biochemically and biologically or socioculturally, that we can start to identify and do things about as a culture, but also as individual people?
0: I can speak to his socio-culturally. I mean, we've all heard the term, it takes a village, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we've heard it so much that it's lost its meaning, but but we revive it all the time because it's such a powerful statement. It is so true. When we look back anthropologically at families and family systems, we see that there were much more expansive units of, of family members, cousins, aunts, uncles, around to help mom, You know, many, many years ago, there were many family members lactating at the same time. And so the baby was passed around, right? Like it was really a family affair. Fast forward to contemporary society, and parenting is a very isolating and lonely experience in the best of times, right? You take a place like New York, which is where we are, and I can speak for myself, right? My parents are in California, my husband's parents are in Germany, we don't have any family members here with us, it's just us. And I think so many couples, this doesn't even begin to talk about the experience of single mothers, don't have that family network and social support system and fabric in place to help them transition to parenthood, transition to motherhood. And so they are already, by design, alone and isolated. You invite that onto the backdrop of a pandemic, and we have never seen rates so high across the board. In mental illness, but in our particular area in regards to PMADS, because that that lack of social support is even more sparse. The isolation is even more profound and and managing these high levels of stress and anxiety as a direct result of an international pandemic which is life-threatening as you're a pregnant person or a new mother whose sole purpose is to keep this infant and baby safe and healthy. You bring all of that into the room, and it's no wonder that we've been seeing these skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety in the perinatal period.
2: What kind of rates have we seen changes in since the pandemic? I heard a statistic 70% increase in perinatal mental health. Symptoms and conditions—is that about right? Yeah,
1: I I don't have the statistic off the top of my head, but from a study at um, at Harvard in the School of Public Health, there there was a uh, showed that there was an astronomical increase, and I think Paige, we usually quote like a seventy two percent increase in mm-hmm. in rates of anxiety and depression during the pandemic. And again, that's a wide range. Uh, that's top of the range. But I I think what we know is that. We have all been so fundamentally changed during this never-ending pandemic that, you know, rates of everything seem to be changing and upticking. And uh, and I don't know where we're going to land or how it's going to go, but I would say that we are, you know, again, staying in our lane. There is most certainly a maternal mental health crisis happening you know, it's evidence in the number of calls that we're getting at the center in the rates of admission to our programs, both our outpatient program and in our perinatal day hospital, our day program. As I sit here, I'm getting um, a call about another emergency. I mean, there are emergencies happening daily in ways that we have never seen before. People are unhinged. And that's, while that's a colloquial word, that is you know, a word that everyone can understand. That 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 the mental health issues affronting everyone, and it, what we're talking about is pregnant and postpartum women is profound. And we are we're especially you know we're dancing as fast as we can to keep up with the need. But there is so much more that we can be doing, that we want to be doing. That the that that those of us in the field, and that you know, like you, you know, that we're all trying to kind of meet the needs, be ahead of it, have the places for people to go thinking ahead of, you know, knowing that, that crises are on the horizon. And and I don't mean to be such a, uh, sounds so negative, but on the other hand, I feel like there is so much that we know and there is so much we can do. And yes, you can medicate pregnant women and those who are breastfeeding. And we have tons of data on that and it's relative safety. And there's just so much more. And people are still wondering, Oh, I have to go off my medications because I'm pregnant? Yeah. Well, you know, if you're bipolar and you're going to end up in the hospital doing that,
2: does that seem like the better way? Well, I think that, it, you know, again, back to this issue of being negative, it's, I think in our culture, we have such a toxic positivity that if we talk about yes. the yes. truth, then we're somehow seen as negative. And I know I apologize for it too. Me too. I, I, I think that there's a liberation that almost makes me truly feel like, Um, I just feel like a lot of emotion welling up around, around this, that there's a liberation in knowing that we're not alone. I remember when my kids were little, I have four, four kids and I was pregnant with my third and I was trying to get my oldest two off to a play date at the park. And it was just one of those moments where, you know, you see the cartoon strips about this, like you know, mom escalating and escalating just to try to get the kids to put the shoes on, to go do something fun with the kids. And I've told this story before, and I just think it's really important too, because sometimes people look at, you know, someone like me or or other people who are, you know, out there in the public, like, oh, they have it all together. And I remember I was trying to get the kids ready. I had this plastic Tupperware in my hands and I just, I was pregnant, I was emotional. It was empty, and I just took it and I threw it on the ground and it bounced up to the ceiling, and the kids were like, "Oh, shoot. <laughs> you know, like mom's really upset and they got their shoes on. And we got to the park. And, you know, I was a midwife at this time. People and the other moms in the mom group looked up to me, and I sat down, and all the moms were like, sharing all their happy stories. And someone said, how's it going, Aviva? And I was like, well, you know, I did throw the Tupperware this morning and that was kind of in lieu of throwing something or someone. And everyone just was like, there was this moment of like time standing still. And then it was like fast forward, all the moms just talking about what was really going on. And, you know, when we say 72%, is that negative? No, it's it's real. And if you're a mom out there listening and you're hearing that number, I hope you're going, it's not just me. This is actually almost three quarters of all mamas. And it doesn't make it better, but maybe it makes it a little less feeling like the shame, the isolation, that you're doing something wrong. And I just keep emphasizing it's it's a cultural phenomenon. It's a time. It's, it's how we live. There are unknown biochemical shifts happening. There are known biochemical shifts and hormonal ha- things happening. And you're not alone. It's not you. So, yeah. And here's to stop being apologizing.
0: <laughs> uh, yes. Talking,
2: yeah. It's permission, what you're talking yes. about, right? Yes. It's
0: normalization and permission. By sharing our truth and telling our stories, we are giving other women permission to do the same.
2: Well, speaking of permission, and I know. Catherine, you have some emergencies coming in, so I want to be respectful of time and what's going on for you. If you have a few minutes, I'd really like us to talk about something that gives permission, which is, Catherine, you mentioned medications. Paige, you talked about medications being transformative for you, and you uh, both know uh, Gabby Bernstein has been public about her work with you. I've spoken with her, and I was there for her postpartum support how liberating medications can be, but they're incredibly stigmatized. And in in my online community, there's often a leaning into natural, so maybe even a higher level of stigma around medications. I'm very supportive of their use prenatally and postpartum. And we know from substantial data, at least in non-pregnant people, that combining medications with Therapies like CBT can actually improve their efficacy and outcome. So can you talk about the role of medications and at least just the importance of permission around exploring them?
1: Yes. That so this is in our, you know, negative few minutes left, this is this is my favorite topic because we used to think, you know, should you take a medication or not take a medication, that it was the mother or the baby right that it was this either or situation but if you have if some kind of mental illness from you know a mild depression to more severe psychosis you know you have risk right? And you have to accept that if there's if there's illness, there's risk, and you're weighing that against the medication, the potential risk of the medication versus the potential risk of the symptoms or the illness, right? No decision is risk-free. And I think when people think about that, they think, I'll just sacrifice. I'll just suck it up and stay home and never leave my house and not go for prenatal care. And, oh, someone will, Give me something natural over the counter. I'll get it at the drugstore. Oh, maybe I'll even smoke marijuana because that calms me down. But I'm not going to take those FDA approved medications that are relatively safe and have been very well studied, probably more studied than any other category of medication that we know. But I can't take those because that will harm the baby. But what they don't realize is that they're potentially, theoretically harming the baby in a million and one other ways that 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 they are not considering. And that is because they are not taking care of themselves. If you are not okay, and you are not well, you are not helping your pregnancy and the
2: fetus, and you are not helping your baby or child. Yeah, we don't have to suffer. And I see that and you know you know my work, so I will work, I'll make sure thyroid is normal, I'll make sure they're not anemic, I'll make sure B12, vitamin D, all those things that can help if, and especially can be contributory if they're abnormal. I make sure there's social supports, I may try botanicals and other things. However, if you're trying these things for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and, weeks and months and months and months and months, you're losing a lot of time. And yes, we all appeal to moms to do things because it's better for the baby, but also it's your memories and your experience of pregnancy and postpartum that in and of itself can cause you ongoing trauma. So I'm a big fan of giving ourselves permission to not suffer and to not be miserable it might not be medication, right? It might yep. be
1: psychotherapy. Yep. There are many other things. We try everything in addition to or before medications if we don't need to use them. But but many times, and obviously by the time you get to a psychiatrist like me, or by the time Paige got to the Payne Whitney Women's Clinic, we, or the Motherhood Center these days, we might be introducing a medication. We don't do it against anybody's will. We always do it in conjunction with the mom and the family. And we really, really give it a lot of thought, but sometimes it really is a big part of the answer.
2: Yeah. So just encouraging all of you to at least keep it in your toolkit of things that you would consider. And Paige, you have said that it was like a life and death.
0: I mean, it was my life preserver, right? For those who who do come and learn more about the Motherhood Center, you'll see that our logo is a life preserver, um, not just because of medication, but because of treatment overall. Um, but it made all the difference. Um, and of the thousands and thousands of women that we've treated, many of whom have taken medication, continue to take medication. It's life changing it is a life preserver that will allow you to have the experience of motherhood that you have always wanted to have to get back to your baseline and to feel good. Um, And that, that feeling good, being well, as we always say to pediatricians and other providers, a well mom is a well baby, right? That's when you can actually show up, be present, have the experience and have that bond and attachment that you always hoped for.
2: Okay. I'm going to ask you each one quick question. If there was one thing you could each tell your younger self, perhaps your pregnant or new mother self, what would that be?
0: I would steal perhaps some of the slogan of Postpartum Sport International. You're not alone. This isn't your fault.
1: And you can and will get better with the right support. Ditto. And I will add, I would tell my younger self, you know, be honest with yourself. Admit that you're having a hard time and tell somebody and ask for help. And don't just try and shoulder it all just because that's my MO. I didn't have to be having such a hard time. Nobody needs to be struggling alone. There are so many more things and people out there to help, community to hold you. We can do it together.
2: You two are so beautiful. Thank you for being here. For those listening who want to reach out to you and the Motherhood Center, what are the best ways to do that?
0: Uh, they can give us a call, a uh, simple number, 212-335-0034. <laughs> they can visit our website at all word.com. We offer support groups. We offer outpatient treatment, both in therapy and medication management with reproductive psychiatrists and perinatal mental health experts and specialists. And we also have a day program, which is a more intensive level of care for new and expecting mothers that are having a really hard time caring for themselves and or their baby that allows women to feel much better, much faster. We are serving all of New York State and New Jersey. We're looking to expand even if you're out of state and you're you're still curious to learn more, you can give us a call and we'll help connect you to the care you need wherever you live. But please, please reach out. Call us. If you're struggling, we want to help you um, and, and, and get you back on the path to enjoying motherhood as you want to and you're meant to.
2: Thank you both so much. We're going to put all the links to all the things in the show notes. So you can find those folks over at avivaram.com. And thank you both for joining me. It's been such a pleasure as always to talk with you. I hope that we do some collaborative things, stay in touch. And I just wish you both so much goodness in in everything in your lives for all the goodness you're bringing mamas and pregnant and birthing people.
0: Thank you so much, Aviva. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about something that's so important.
2: Of course for If you found this helpful or feel that somebody you know could benefit, please make sure to share this episode and you can go over to avivaram.com the hidden motherhood struggle. avivaram.com the hidden motherhood struggle for show notes and links. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.